And I think the other big mistake is not thinking of yourself as a business person. You know, a lot of musicians are very intimidated by business. I'm intimidated by it and I'm not a musician. You know, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot you gotta know, but just having the mindset of, I'm an artist, this is my brand, this is my livelihood, this is my business. It's easy to get lost in today's music industry with constantly changing technology and where anyone with a computer can release their own music. But I'm gonna share with you why this is the best time to be an independent musician and it's only getting better. If you have high quality music, but you just don't know the best way to promote yourself so that you can reach the right people and generate a sustainable income with your music, we're gonna show you the best strategies that we're using right now to reach millions of new listeners every month without spending 10 hours a day on social media. We're creating a revolution in today's music industry, and this is your invitation to join me. I'm your host, Michael Walker. All right, so I'm excited to be here today with Jack Foreman. Jack is the president of Bicoastal Productions, which is a New York-based uh, company that specializes in, in booking concerts and theatrical performances. And one thing that I discovered when I, was, when I was looking up your bio, Jack, was not only do you book some of the top performing musicians, but you also book some comedy acts. So Colin... Uh, is it pronounced mockery from Hood's Line? Is that anyways? Yeah, yeah, like uh, like you're making a mockery. That's kind of how you Mo that's mockery. The okay, there we yeah. go. Yeah, I saw I saw his face, and I'm like, oh, dude, I know that guy. <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> he's um, great. So he's really great. So what that means is that you know he's specialized in getting artists booked at performing art centers, theaters, casinos, fairs, festivals, and so today uh, I thought it would be really awesome to dig into live shows and at the time of recording this we're, we're kind of around the corner when it comes to the pandemic things have been closed down for a long time i think they're starting to open back up but there's a lot of uncertainty still just in terms of how safe is it to gather and what do live events look like now kind of in this post-pandemic world so i'm looking forward to having a discussion with jack to, to have some of his insight in terms of what it shows look like right now that we're kind of approaching that point and where do we think things are going to go in the future so jack thanks so much for taking the time to be here today Thank you, Michael. I appreciate you guys having me on. Awesome. So to start out with, uh, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your story and how you got started and how you became the president of this this uh, company. Uh, well, it's it's weird for me. It was always uh, it was always music. It was always uh, business and music. And uh, I I have zero musical abilities myself. You know, I'm, I don't sing. I don't play an instrument. But I've always been fascinated with the business aspect of concerts, especially. Uh, but I went to a an art school in Chicago, and it was all about arts artist rights. You know, recording royalty management and artist management, artist development. And I just became so enamored with it. And, you know, all of a sudden I decided I was just going to try to go after every internship I could. You know, I interned for a couple of record labels, spent some time in New York for a little bit, took a semester off, interned at the Windish Agency in Chicago before it was uh, part of Paradigm. So really cut my teeth there and just got a ton of experience. And uh, I started communicating around graduation with ICM Partners in New York, and uh, they had a spot open for me after I graduated. So I basically had two days to pack up and move. And uh, I was living in Wisconsin at the time, so I couldn't move fast enough. But I, I ended up coming to ICM out here, spent a few months there uh, working as an assistant uh, to a hip hop agent there, which was great. Learned a lot, wasn't really the right uh, track for me and wasn't the best time for me to be there. So I ended up just bowing out and uh, I still talk to the agent sometimes to this day, he's great. But shortly afterwards I met uh, Ron Gartner and Fran Heller, who founded Bicoastal. And I've been with them for now a little bit over seven years. And 
it's really it's really been amazing to not only watch our company grow from the size it was to the size it is now, but also to be a part of that growth and to and to kind of experience it more and more. And uh, I've just I've always enjoyed the way we do things and our artist rosters continue to develop and grow. And I've just I've been very fortunate to have people that support me and believe in me. And not everybody gets that in a company they enter, you know, blindly. And uh, I was made president shortly after the pandemic broke out. So it's kind of a weird timing, but I uh, wasn't going to say no. And I wasn't going to uh, not show my appreciation because it, it really has been an amazing year as well as a devastating, horrible year at times, too. So. Mm, for sure. Yeah, man. What a time to become the president of a, you know, a booking <laughs> agency, like right around the time when everything's closed down, you have to kind of pivot and do all these unique um, kind of styles of performances. So, you know, now that you have this roster and you, know, you had gotten into this groove of booking these shows, I'm curious, you know, what, what was it like when things first, when the pandemic happened and what did you guys do to kind of pivot? And um, what were some of the like, what are the biggest challenges that you saw artists struggling with at the point that, you know, the pandemic struck when it comes to live shows? Well, when it immediately struck, our concerns and focuses were on the touring shows that were out on the road at the time. You know, a lot of our artists, uh, you know, they tour sporadically. They're not necessarily doing months at a time. Uh, but it just so happened to be during a time when we had two different international artists in the States on buses in the middle of nowhere in the country driving to their next shows and then dates just dropped left and right it was like being in the stock market on a bad day so not only did we have to worry about where we were going to put them and where they were going to be safe uh, we also had to worry about getting them home so that was quite a week shows just started to cancel left and right cancel reschedule reschedule restructure basically every agent that survived this uh, had to learn to adapt learn to be a whole lot better teammate. And, uh, you know, I think for us, the struggle was trying to modernize with the world that had already been developing on the back burner before the pandemic that all of a sudden became super relevant. All of a sudden, virtual performances, virtual engagement became paramount. That was everything. So we had to not only embrace it, but we had to make sure our artists embraced it and that they had content and that they were going live, that they were doing all kinds of things. And we ended up starting to get into booking virtual performances. So not that it was our preferred method, but we, we really dove headfirst into that. We partnered with a couple of companies. We became very friendly with a number of different streaming platforms. Uh, the one that we kind of aligned ourselves with in the beginning most was a company called Veeps that was bought by Live Nation eventually. Great company. But, you know, we really, surprisingly enough, banded together more with other agents uh, which is surprising because most of us are super competitive, but a lot of us got together and it's been a really good teamwork building back together. Kind of a mm -hmm. nice kumbaya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing like uh, adversity and a challenge to bring bring people together. You know, it is pretty interesting how you know, one thing that comes to mind is you know this whole uh, ecosystem with Twitch and Twitch streaming. You know, it's the kind of thing where would have told me when I was like 10 years old that it was possible in the future that I could get paid to play video games then I would have you know I probably wouldn't be here right now I'd probably be like sitting in a yeah. cave somewhere playing video games but um you know part of the community the part of the reason that it's grown so much is just that they have such an interesting ecosystem and community of, of people and one of the things that they do is they do these things called raids 
where it's basically like one streamer will be playing and then as soon as they're about to bow out they'll be like hey let's go raid this other streamer and they bring all of their people over to this other streamer and so there's kind of this this ebb and flow and this cross-pollination that's happening and in some ways i feel like with the virtual performances there's almost an opportunity for less competition because there is sort of this being virtual like there's not as much um limitation at least like in terms of local you know like local competition versus like you know there's a lot wider market so it's kind of interesting to think about you know the collaboration that can happen between booking agents and kind of uh, coming together and online in some ways it's such a big transition to go from really focusing on live shows in person to being completely virtual what was kind of the process like for artists for adapting and going virtual and were there was that like challenging for artists and what was that kind of like for them to go through some of them it was challenging you know some of them were not as technically apt but i think if if a pandemic was going to happen there's no good time for it to happen but for for it to happen in 2020 and 21 uh where the technology is there and it's very accessible i i guess that's one way of looking at it half full a lot of artists really were very intimidated by it especially older artists you know who are more traditional um, a lot of them thought, well, nobody will ever buy that, or that's not really a viable means of connecting with my audience, but you needed to do something unless, unless you're, you know, somebody really, really big who can incubate for a couple of years, you know, and then come back and everybody's happy to see you. You know, a lot of artists on the rise really got creative and a lot of stuff became super, super unique and they found ways of packaging it. Um, so we, we worked with a lot of our artists in different ways. You know, we represent, um, we represent an artist, Lee Rocker from the Stray Cats. He's, you know, this classic musician who's done it all, seen it all. And he, what he did is he took a pre-existing uh, special that he had recorded at uh, Daryl Hall's venue in uh, in New York at Daryl's Hall, Daryl's house, and he released it for free. But he only made it available to theaters, and theaters could release it to free or for free to their audiences, so that mm-hmm. they had content to put out. And then a lot of our artists followed suit with that. Uh, we have another act called Naturally Seven um, that we man- that we uh, we book here in North America. Uh, it's an acapella group, really incredible group, and they did ticketed live stream events that went really well. They were reaching fans all around the world at different times, and it was just something very, very unique. Every artist found a way of doing it. Sometimes we even partnered with the theaters or partnered with a festival or a promoter and say, hey, you know, you have this audience locally and the other side of the country or the other side of the world even that we're not able to reach obviously as well as you can you're hurting i guarantee you're hurting so let's 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 do something you know we we got nothing better to do other than reschedule shows and you know try to file for some grants and uh, restructure our business you know work from home there's really there was really nothing to lose for a lot of artists and a lot of venues and the ones that survived are oftentimes the ones who if they weren't attached to a college or a city or a big corporation, they were ones who got super creative. Like I'm on the Jersey Shore. There's the Count Basie Theater right near me. They were having outdoor concerts from the very beginning of the pandemic and were selling them out. And it wasn't a you know a get rich type of thing, but it was keeping them going and keeping their employees paid. So stuff like that is really what got people through, I'd say. Um, it was hard, but it, people got it. Uh, they really did. Mm. That's so that's so interesting, dude. That's and and powerful too to to see like the ingenuity that comes out of you know challenging situations and see how people creatively adapt. So it sounds like what you're saying is that one thing that 
you guys did successfully was actually reaching out to uh, theaters and places, venues that had. So did they have like a pre-existing like list, like an email list or text messages, or like how how did they like how how did they communicate? How did they reach those people? And then and then you were able to kind of partner with them to do these events, these ticketed events. And I'm also curious what software you've you guys have t- tried out and gotten the best results with in terms of doing ticketed events. Uh, well, it depended. You know, every uh, that was the fun part was working on ticketed events virtually, where these venues would have like a ten-year contract with Ticketmaster, and then all of a sudden you're bringing in this weird live stream software that has its own ticketing. And sure enough, you know, Houston, we have a problem. But it's mm. it's you know every every so often we did it in a weird way. Uh, like Colin Mockery, whom you mentioned at the top of this, him and Brad Sherwood, you know, a, a frequent whose line is it anyway guest. They they do a tour almost all year round when they're not doing other shows, and they did a bunch of Zoom improvisational shows with limited audiences. And I believe some of them were partnered with theaters where they would share in the revenue. Uh, it would be, and for sometimes it would be a split from dollar one, because that was the problem. It was such a hard a hard thing to predict how well something would sell virtually. Uh, it's a whole new it's a whole new set of data that is is kind of alien to most producers but for a lot of people you know some some venues would actually still use their stage they would get a handful of cameras they'd wire them all into you know into an interface via obs or some sort of comparable software and they would insert a stream key into obs open broadcasts um you know for those who aren't as apt like me they would insert a stream key from whatever software they were going to use. So I mentioned Veeps before. Veeps made it really easy. They gave you the server and the stream key, and you hooked it up, and you directed people to buy tickets. And there was a paywall. Uh, there was another company we worked with called Noon Chorus that could literally embed the concert into any website. There was a lot of different ways that this could work and a lot of creative ways. But at the bare bones of it, it was OBS, you know, just people doing it via Twitch, the big, the best example that most musicians know about is this guy from uh, the band Trivium, uh, Matt Heafy, I believe his name is Heafy Heafy. He was on Twitch five hours a day, just streaming his life, and he had millions of people following him, just watching him play his guitar and work out and do whatever he does. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't. I mean, I, it's amazing. Like you said, if 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 we were when we were kids, to think about getting paid to play video games and just have people watch us do what we do, like. I still can't believe it. It doesn't doesn't <laughs> still doesn't resonate to me. Yeah, it is it is crazy. Yeah, it's it's crazy and like it's really robust. Like it's like a, a hardcore community. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is that really like at the core of it was there's a lot of different softwares, a lot of different services that came up, and really it's just about finding a way to distribute, you know, to still perform, but to do it online. You can use a software like OBS. Um, I know there's like Wirecast Pro is like a, a software you can use and a lot of different ones that you can do in different platforms, basically creating a, a paywall or a gate between where people can sign up and get, get the events. You, you mentioned how you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it kind of happened at a time where, you know, at least we had the internet and we had Zoom and we had like the infrastructure to not just be completely blo- blocked off, which... Yeah, I can only imagine what it would be like 40 or 50 years ago. It would be so much, so much worse. But I also wonder, like, because uh, as you were describing that, I was like imagining virtual reality headsets, and I don't know, like 30 or 40 years in the future, like if, as virtual reality um, becomes uh, more and more 
evolved you know what it would be like like if we if maybe we wouldn't even be affected at all it's like oh yeah cool like i'll start my, my vr headset and i'll be at a concert and we'll just like hang out and we'll have these like vr experiences so that's that's i don't want to like, go down too much for rabbit hole but have you seen anything like in terms of like vr shows is that even like a thing yet or is it still too like like early or it just isn't good yet or or what, what have you seen so far around around vr it's definitely a thing, uh, and it's been a thing for a lot of years. But pe- a lot of people couldn't fathom it. I'll admit, I'll admit first off, you know, a lot of my shows cater to a uh, you know fifty and older crowd. Uh, you know, we've gotten younger with our roster over the years, but um, you know, we still have a number of acts that cater to a seated performing arts center type crowd. Those people aren't necessarily rushing to get VR headsets, uh, <laughs> but you know, if you think about it, some of the best examples of alternate reality, you know, I guess that's what they're calling it, AR, VR. One of the things they're doing is they were having the the concerts broadcast into a video game, you know, where they would have the Minecraft Music Festival, or they'd have the Fortnite Festival, you know, where an artist would literally be performing, and they would put the performance or embed it somehow into the game. And then the players you know, whether it was VR or whether it was just watching on their screen, they could walk around the game as if they were walking around the show. That's definitely going to be interesting. It's one of those things that I think that um, for a while it's been pretty hyped up, right? Like VR and and whatnot. And for a while it's been kind of like under, like it's not as, as cool as like you might think it was, but, but then it seems like right now with like Oculus Quest or some cool stuff that's happening and, and in the future, you know, maybe that is something that could that if we have another pandemic, you know, heaven forbid, like 20 years from now, then maybe everyone will just be able to throw on their, their VR headsets and, and be able to tune in and experience um, shows like that. So because you know, m- most people, I think, aren't, you know, like, like VR isn't like a, like a super common, commonplace thing, what, what are some other ideas that you've seen, some creative, innovative ideas that the artists have done successfully in order to create like a unique experience that kind of brings people together. I feel like with concerts, it's like so much of it's about the community and about, you know, being together and surrounded by like-minded people who are listening to the songs. So I'm curious on like how artists have been able to recreate that. Well, the pandemic has uh, accidentally offered every attendee of every type of event uh, a massive commonality in that everybody is kind of pissed that they're not all there in person together. So that's really something that people have had a lot of uh, kinship and camaraderie about. But I guess the biggest thing that people have done that was the most hopeful for all of us were live performances, you know, actually live socially distant performances where you had pod seating or you had table seating where you were with your own group or tailgate seating. Uh, none of it, I, I literally don't think I can speak for anybody in saying that any of it was uh, extremely profitable, but it was it was a business. It was at least able to you know break even in certain situations, and sometimes it was subsidized or sponsored so that it wasn't going to lose a ton of money, but that was probably my favorite, is when people figured out ways of doing it live, and people were coming to it live. You know, now, as we're getting back, you know, certain states, you can have all the people you want. You know, they had 70, 73,000 people in Cowboy Stadium two weeks ago for a boxing match. You ever think we'd get to that, you know, in 2021? Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's stuff like that that I, you know, but along the way, even from the beginning, like, you know, Dave Chappelle doing his his comedy specials in a cornfield in, in Ohio, you know, mm-hmm. th- that was really what I got a kick out of personally. And I thought, I think a lot of people who were able to do that are going to come back even stronger. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard about that uh, cornfield, cornfield show. 
So uh, one thing that we had talked a little bit about was, you know, the the future and kind of this like hybrid approach now that uh, things are kind of opening back up. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, the future of the live show industry now that we've kind of had this experience with the pandemic. And, you know, I'm not sure how long there will be kind of this sense of lingering fear or, or whatnot. But, but also I think that there's like, there's uh, some things that we've discovered or, or new innovative ideas that have actually worked really well and some interesting ideas that might just change the future of, of live performing in general in terms of live streaming and whatnot. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, what are, what, what do you think is going to happen now that um, things are starting to open back up and how, how is this going to ripple out and affect the future of the industry? They're going to have new measures that they're going to have to follow at, um, at concert venues for quite a while health-wise in certain states. Uh, other states are going to just go back to normal uh, right away. And uh, I've taken a stance of not judging anybody who's trying to get back to work at this point, you know, uh, to each their own, whatever feeds your family. But when it comes to events overall, I have a feeling a lot more places are going to be offering a virtual component uh, to their potential audience. They may be only able to sell 500 tickets, but they could open up a virtual audience to God knows how many. I have a, uh, I have a show called um, The Silhouettes that I represent. It's a, uh, it's, a, it's a dance company, actually. They were on America's Got Talent a couple of different times, and it's a shadow dance company where they create the shapes and silhouettes behind a, a curtain, essentially, or behind a screen. I have a show with them in Colorado that I just booked for September of this year, and they are going to open up the auditorium for it to ticket buyers, but they're also going to be streaming it uh, to ticket buyers. So you can buy it as a pay-per-view style event if you live in another state, another country, anywhere to experience that. And the venue has now opened itself up to a higher gross potential uh, via a pretty affordable ticket scale uh, for the streaming ticket. I don't recall off the bat what it was, but. The silhouettes have have fans all over the world from their America's Got Talent appearances. So, you know, they'll be advertising saying, hey, you know, we're performing in Colorado, but don't worry if you're somewhere else, you know, watch us live, watch us perform live as we perform at this at this venue. So that kind of stuff, I think you're going to see more and more of Uh, festivals. I'm sure will do it in some capacity, but I I think that young people are going to you know, the, the thought was, oh, everybody will get into this. But now as things are coming back, we're starting to see more people say, I'm just, I just want to be there. You know, I just want to go. I have been aching, basically dying to go to a concert for so long. You know, I'm 30 years old and I, I, you and I are both dads. We share that. I had COVID not too long ago too and I thankfully recovered. But I, I, nothing will make me happier than being able to go out to a show again and to be in a crowd again. You know, not necessarily a, like a raging crowd, but even if I'm sitting in a seat somewhere watching live music, that would make a world of difference to me. Absolutely. Yeah, man, it's going it's to be awesome. And I feel like at the time of recording this right now, like it's, it's kind of a, a beautiful moment. My, my parents just visited for the first time since Willow was born oh, wow. you know, about nine months ago. So like my dad got to meet his granddaughter for the first time. and That's amazing. And yeah, and it, it, it feels so good to kind of, you know, knock on wood. I don't want to like jinx anything, but it does seem like we're kind of turning around the corner and things are starting to open back up. But totally, dude. In terms of the the opportunity for doing a hybrid approach, I mean, that's one thing that like as we've built modern musician that I've really come to appreciate is just like this whole 
market and opportunity in terms of like the online information space and building a business through digital digital assets and i think that's one thing that's kind of gone undervalued or like musicians are like are starting to kind of to catch on to is this amazing opportunity to package and sell um digital currency and, and we kind of have it with like music but also i feel like streaming royalties have, have sort of you know not really for a lot of independent musicians haven't really been like the thing that's keeping the lights on but just like adding in a component of hey if you come if you come to the live show here's a box like you're, you're getting a ticket for a live show check this box for an extra ten dollars you can have the recordings and you can keep them for, for the rest for the rest of your life right like i imagine it's like yeah. something like that is like a really cool component and giving people the opportunity to to have a, a virtual ticket where they can tune in for ten dollars or an extra they tick the box they can keep the recording they can download it for you know forever they have a really high quality recording of it i think there's definitely some really cool some really cool opportunities there to yeah. increase increase the the revenue yeah i mean or you could pay a million dollars and have the nft you know which is a whole nother rabbit hole that I don't, I don't i'm not knowledgeable enough to go down but i just uh, that, I mean, that's really the truth. When you talk about owning a piece of digital history, that's that's it in a nutshell. And you're you're monetizing it, sure enough. But absolutely, you know, people are. I I, I talked. I have a friend at uh, the company Royalty Exchange where, and that's just one company that does it. There's tons of companies that do it now where artists will literally sell their catalogs for millions of dollars, and it'll be like the stock market. You know, they'll 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 have the same types of investors and. Those types of people were never considering doing that, at least not at this point in their careers. But you're you're reading about it every week that a new big artist just sold their catalog for, you know, uh, eight nine figures, and it's just it's a lot. It's amazing. So, yeah, I I think they're gonna they're only gonna get more creative, and I just I, I pray that it it doesn't screw the people who don't have the knowledge necessarily of exactly how it works and all of its intricacies. It, it helps to have a coach for all of that. Oh, what's up, guys? So quick intermission from the podcast so I can tell you about an awesome free gift that I have for you. I wanted to share something that's not normally available to the public. They normally reserve for our $5,000 clients that we work with personally. This is a presentation called Six Steps to Explode Your Fan Base and Make a Profit with Your Music Online. And specifically, we're gonna walk through how to build a paid traffic and automated funnel gonna allow you to grow your fan base online and the system's designed to get you to your first $5,000 a month with your music. We've invested over $130,000 in the past year to test out different traffic sources and different offers and really see what's working best right now for musicians. And so I think it's gonna be hugely valuable for you. And so if that's something you're interested in, in the description, there should be a little link that you can click on to go get that. And uh, the other thing I want to mention is, you know, if you want to do us a, a huge favor, one thing that really makes a big difference early on when you're creating a new podcast is if people click subscribe, then it basically lets the algorithm know that this is something that's new and noteworthy and that uh, people actually want to hear. And so that'll help us reach a lot more people. So if you're getting value from this and you get value from the free trainings, then if you want to do us a favor, I'd really appreciate you clicking the subscribe button. All right, let's get back to the podcast. So I, I know that you just, um, you said you were like, you want to be careful about going down too much rabbit hole with NFTs and you know, <laughs> not like, you know, like an expert on it. I'm also definitely no. not an expert. Like I have like had 
one or two conversations where I kind of, like I'm just starting to, to hear more about these and understand these. But granted, like in acknowledging the fact that neither of us is an expert at NFTs, um, I, I'd be curious to have a, a, a to go a little bit deeper into that in, in terms of like what that means. So it's like yeah, but non fungible token. And so could you share a little bit about how NFTs work and what exactly they are? Uh, well, you know, my my older brother, if he were if he were here, he'd give you the real definition. He's in he's in the world of tech and business, and uh, you know that's basically all everybody's everybody's talking about is crypto and uh, blockchain technologies. And essentially, it's a it's a regulated, uh, protected form of digital currency in the form of a piece of art. Uh, and you own it. You own a moment of, of history that was recorded or somehow captured digitally, like the first ever tweet to have been tweeted on Twitter. Say that 10 times fast. Uh, <laughs> you know, was captured as an NFT that somebody paid millions of dollars for. And they own that. And they've assigned uh, monetary value to it. Uh, another good example. I, I mentioned that, that boxing match in Texas a little bit ago. They sold uh, NFTs from that event. You know, there was a big knockout in the fight. They sold that knockout as an NFT. That moment in, in digital history of, of streaming that event is now owned by somebody or a group of people, you know, because you know, thousands of people can buy in on an, on an NFT. I think, I think you gotta be careful because there's a lot of stuff that is worth it and isn't. You know, I could, I could, I could have my two-year-old doodle on an iPad and I could send it to somebody and say, this is an NFT, it's one of a kind, and give me a million dollars. But I think it really does have to be something that can be proven original. I, uh, I, I have a colleague that I know who owns several pieces of uh, 60s and 70s music memorabilia that have never been seen by anybody. He's kept them in an archive. And it's like pictures of Jimi Hendrix that never got released. And he's talking about turning them into an NFT. So, you know, pictures of Jimi Hendrix that never saw the light of day that can only be owned by one person in the world, somebody can assign a value to that, a digital value to it. And maybe they'll even send them the actual photo. But it's, it, again, I, I, uh, I encourage anybody who is intrigued by it to research it because it can be explained to you a lot easier by somebody who understands it a lot more. I think once you start getting beyond contracts and ticketing and touring and backline and all that good stuff, you pretty much, you know, lose my expertise. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's super interesting though. I mean, it's, it's interesting having conversations and, and kind of like, I, I think that these are the conversations that everyone's going to be having, you know, like with their friends and, and other musicians and whatnot. So, so NFTs. So when it comes to like, when you say ownership, like ownership of this digital piece of history or this like milestone, this moment, like how does that ownership manifest? Like, does that mean that they like have licensing? Like, like no one else can share that clip of that fight unless they have the license from the person who owns the NFT, like that kind of ownership? Or is it more just kind of this like trophy that they get to hold on to? That's like, Hey, like I own this trophy. No, I, I don't think it's like that. It's like, it's kind of like when you register a star, you know, you don't own that star. Nobody can prove that you own that star. It's a star, millions of miles away. Uh, but if you if you register an NFT, there's some sort of and again, I I really am. This is this is at least my limited, you know, elementary understanding of it. Speaking, uh, 
there's some sort of a unique characteristic to it that is only available in one shape or form digitally. Uh, and you own that via whatever platform you purchase it from. Uh, and it can't be, it can't be found anywhere else, at least in that exact same form. And it's kind of like Bitcoin, Bitcoin. There was, it's not like you can just invent Bitcoin out of thin air, you know, the most famous cryptocurrency of them all. There was a finite amount of Bitcoin in the universe of technology and they were mined. Uh, you had to literally mine the, the electronic coins. And, you know, once you mine all the coins, then there's no more Bitcoin. You're just messing around with and trading those that exist. So I, I think as you get into that world, you, and you get more into the digital economics of it, they'll explain it to you better than that. But I, I, I'm sorry, I wish I'd give you a better, a better answer than that. No, for, for someone who's not an expert at NFT, you'd certainly know uh, a lot more than, than I do. And I think it's really interesting um, having conversations like this. And I mean, when we're talking about live shows, right? Like it seems like one of the things that makes live shows so valuable and probably one of the reasons that they're such a, a core, or at least historically, um, in modern day before the pandemic have been, have been such a, like a core piece of the revenue model for musicians comes from the fact that there's an inborn sense of scarcity around these live shows, these live experiences. You got to be there. And if you're not, you know, if you're not there, then you might, you might miss out. And it's like a very tangible thing. And one of the challenges with modern day music in terms of like you know cd sales um used to be such a huge generator of revenue but now it's like you know we have streaming and, and music almost feels free it's like you can just stream it so in some ways it feels like we're kind of missing that that scarcity or missing that kind of that special feeling of like oh i own this song and i'm gonna play it for a friend when they come over and like this says something about me like this 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 tangible thing so i wonder if like the nfts can kind of bring back a piece of that um, specialness and that sort of that tangible uh, scarcity elements of it. Um, it's like a rare yeah. record. It's that same feeling of owning a piece of vinyl that they only made 400 of them in, the, in you know, 1965 and you own one of them and it's a physical piece of vinyl that you can hold in your hands, you can dust it off and you can put it on your platter and you have a feeling like I am listening to and holding a piece of history. And for me, you know, I, I feel like an old man when I say this, but for me to feel like I own a piece of history, I feel like I have to be holding it in my hands to say I own it or I'm experiencing it or I'm witnessing it. Uh, but for a lot of people, you're absolutely right. That's a way of reconnecting because so much of it's just kind of existing in the cyberspace for everybody to use and everybody to stream and everybody to tap into. But if you give somebody something super unique, they're going to feel they're going to feel that special sense and others are going to feel that sense of envy of I kind of wish I could experience that part that part of history you know like that incredible knockout that was that shocked the world in that boxing match you know somebody has that or has license to it again I, I don't know I don't know how sports NFTs really how, how special that is but if an artist releases an album or a single as an NFT that only a handful of people own that's incredible you know, and those people are going to feel like I own something special. Cool. I mean, another thing, too, that could kind of tie into what we're talking about with live streaming performances and maybe something for people who are listening to this right now to explore is, you know, what if you created an NF NFT out of every live stream that you did? And so, you know, you had a weekly 
a weekly performance and it's like this is a very special performance and this is only one of a kind and every single week you just got into a good routine of like creating an nft for it and doing an auction so like you do an auction to your audience you say okay well we're gonna see you know what this goes for and you know just an interesting um definitely an interesting thing to explore it sounds like there's a lot of money circulating right now and like nfts and uh, it's an interesting dynamic yeah i made a big mistake not going into uh finance uh because there is a ton of money in that and i i think that if for those who know how to trade it and have the stomach to go all in on it uh and can really clean up on it it's great i don't know how long it'll last or how how much value it will have you know because then you're if you think about any cryptocurrency you also have to think about our country and every country in the world who has their own federal reserve that is minting money on a regular basis whenever the economy requires it. And then there's this unregulated cryptocurrency out there in the world for anybody to grab onto, pick and choose. You wonder how many governments are going to put up with it for very long. Uh, that's kind of one of the schools of thought out there. So let's mm -hmm. see how long it can last. But I, yeah, I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew much more about it. But I'm a simple, I'm a simple booking agent. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty clueless when it comes to like uh, Bitcoin as well. And I, and I, yeah. I didn't invest in Bitcoin and, but, and certainly like right at the time of recording this, like it's fluctuated and it's gone way, way up and you mm -hmm. know, people have made millions, probably billions of dollars on, on Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. So it's definitely, definitely interesting. But I mean, it's, I, I think for anyone listening to this right now, it would be something worth looking into as a musician as an artist it'd be an interesting opportunity to explore and, and tie it in with um live shows and creating that scarcity or creating that tangible nature of owning like having ownership of it could be something really interesting all right well i feel like i've <laughs> I've, I've really pushed you here um jack to like to that's go down fine. this road with like nfts i appreciate you um sharing even though like you know it's something that's still like you haven't like, learning explored a ton but are you uh, on um are you on clubhouse michael the app you know i Rick Barker invited me to Clubhouse. I joined. He's always um, on. Rick's Rick's always on Clubhouse. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's it's it that's the only reason me. I yeah. the only reason I say it is because uh, almost every room is about NFTs and Bitcoin. So if you have the patience for it, go on Clubhouse and you'll learn all about it. And uh, I just I, I I lose it. I I'm so ADD about that kind of stuff. So just a, just a a tip from a fellow uh, confused person. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Yeah, maybe I'll have to give uh, Clubhouse more of a chance. I'm, I'm generally sort of like a social media hermit, where like I, I don't, I, except when it comes to like advertising, because I, mm -hmm. I, I like being able to set things up and automate them and being able to, to leverage it as a tool. But definitely interested. If you couldn't tell just by the fact that I really kept digging into NFTs, um, it's, I think it's really interesting and definitely something worth learning more about. Let's uh, let's get back to, to talking about kind of like live shows and and other potential opportunities for like uh, for artists who are listening to this right now when it comes to things are opening back up. What do you say are some of the biggest mistakes? Like after having worked with a lot of artists and you know booking shows for them, what, like what do you, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that you see happening over and over again when it comes to musicians and performing live shows? Just in general or post pandemic? Um, maybe maybe both. But okay. um, especially kind of like post-pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of folks uh, think they're ready for something before they've really dug in and did the work, or or have done the work, uh, and that's really the biggest thing you see. 
time and time again at any phase of any part of this industry. Uh, you know, you wanna, you're an artist who wants to play a big thousand cap room, but have you sold out enough 500 and 750 seat rooms to justify that? Maybe you've played a couple hundred seat rooms and you say, all right, I'm, I'm going on the next one. And somebody has to take that risk on you. Uh, somebody has to invest their money in your concert to go there. I, I think the biggest missteps you often see are people trying to run before they can walk. And sometimes they actually hit their stride and they can, they can make it. But others sometimes stumble and bite off way more than they can chew. And I think the other big mistake is not thinking of yourself as a business person. You know, a lot of musicians are very intimidated by business. I'm intimidated by it and I'm not a musician. You know, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot you gotta know, but just having the mindset of, I'm an artist, this is my brand, this is my livelihood, this is my business. You know, I am this artist and this is, this is my life. I have chosen to devote my life to this. I've chosen to bear my creative soul out on stage and on a record for millions of people to hear and see. But if you, if you don't think of yourself as business, you're not only allowing yourself to open up to possible threats, you're just, you're missing out on a lot of opportunity uh, to set yourself up for a proper future. There's a lot of people out there who can benefit from having having some sort of a voice in their head, even if it's a friend, you know, a friend or an uncle or somebody who knows the business or knows business period, you know, having a lawyer in your corner, having somebody who can explain all this to you when you don't get it, because the worst thing you can do is sign on the dotted line and you don't realize what you've just signed away. You know, we, we as agents are programmed to look at the nuts and bolts of every single offer, but we also are programmed to look at it objectively from either side. And that that right now is how it relates to the pandemic, is that everybody is trying to get back. And if you just think about yourself and making money and being greedy and not the venue and not the promoter and not the, the ticket sellers and all that, you're gonna, you're gonna be one of the last ones to really succeed with it because everybody's being very collaborative right now, thankfully. You know, if, if you're working with a promoter whom you used to work with before the pandemic and you know, they used to pay you a lot more for your shows, but now they've been so ransacked for the last years where they're asking you to maybe do two shows in one day for the price of one. A lot of artists are willing to do it. They say, I'm, yeah, I'm already in Seattle. Why not play two shows in one day? I don't care, you know, I'm there already. It's not like I have to, you know, get in my, get in my bus and I have to travel another hundred miles. No, I'm, I'm in the same room, you know? Maybe I'll drink some extra tea that night. Uh, and then the promoter is able to to have two shows that you know can either be socially distant or they can be uh, just contingent on one not selling as well or, or one selling really well. Finding those little collaborations and cooperations between various arms and legs of an artist's industry is what's gonna keep people thriving and keep people alive, is finding a connection with, with those who support the ecosystem you live in or at least strive to live in and you'll have that ability to, to not only foster a great relationship, but also find new success while also supporting those who ultimately you need, whether you want to support them or not. You know, they, there was all this talk about save our stages. And it wasn't just because we want, we want our live music venues back, it's that we want our music back. And where else are you going to get it other than your local concert house? And who has a better reach to a community than your local concert house? You don't. 
you don't know as many people as your local concert house has on their mailing list. So wouldn't it help you as an artist to partner with a, a local music venue somewhere you, you're not? So I could go all day with this, but the truth, the truth is it's, it's a collaborative measure. And in addition to being smart with your money and with your, your decisions, don't be afraid to look at new things and be, be cooperative and collaborative in this day and age. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, so, so it sounds like, you know, a couple of the biggest um, mistakes that you see, like, both, like, generally are, one, um, just being willing to to learn and kind of start out and, you know, maybe have patience, you know, have patience to kind of build things up before you're playing a thousand cap, two thousand cap rooms that, you know, that you get really good at playing a hundred cap, two hundred cap rooms. And then that, especially in today's day and age, kind of post-pandemic, that it's really important to have an eye for collaboration and um, so really pay attention to how can I serve um, the other people in this community as well. It's not just about me, 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 but also like how can we grow together and support each other specifically. I mean, one, uh, one thing that you mentioned that I think it's a big opportunity, like it, this isn't something that really registered to me, but I think anyone listening to this like could really capitalize on this idea of creating strategic partnerships with the, the concert venues and with the promoters and with the people that right now um, you might have, be like struggling to you know to keep things going so like reaching out figuring out how can we collaborate and do cool innovative things virtually and tapping into that that email list and that audience that exists within those those concert halls i think is a really smart idea um for anyone to to be listening right now to kind of figure out how can we how can we partner with with those those concert halls or anybody else you know a record store don't forget about your, your local neighborhood record store, you know, that's been there forever. There's, there's still a place for just about everybody. Cool. All right. Well, hey, Jack, it's been, it's been awesome talking with you, and um, I appreciate you going. We've gone uh, multiple different directions in this, and we've gone some places kind of in the future. We talked about VR and NFTs. We've also talked about <laughs> just kind of real uh, world, like, with like booking in the middle of a pandemic kind of post post pandemic what that looks like so uh, thanks so much for taking the time to to share some of the lessons the knowledge that that you've learned and for anyone that's listening to this right now who's interested in learning more from you or connecting um where do you recommend that they go to to dive deeper i love hearing from people um i'm i'm open to hearing from anybody my email address is jack at bicoastalproductions.com our website bicoastalproductions.com if you want to learn more about our roster uh, about what we do. Uh, submissions, uh, we're pretty backed up and we're trying not to grow the roster too much, but uh, talent at bicoastalproductions.com. And uh, I'm on, I'm trying to be better with Instagram. According to my wife, I'm not doing enough there. Uh, so it's most, if you want to see a lot of cute baby pictures, that's uh, that's where you could find, find them is uh, my Instagram, Jack B. Foreman. But uh, I, I really appreciate you having me on, Michael. It's been great, great talking to you, and I appreciate all you guys do, you know, over there for musicians and for, uh, you know, any of those who are looking to develop their careers, you know, that much more. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, man. I appreciate you being part of it. Absolutely. Be well. Hey, it's Michael here. I hope that you got a ton of value out of this episode. Make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about our guest today. And if you want to support the podcast, then there's a few ways to help us grow. 
First, if you hit subscribe, then that'll make sure you don't miss a new episode. Secondly, if you share it with your friends or on your social media, tag us. That, that really helps us out. And third, uh, best of all, if you leave us an honest review, it's going to help us reach more musicians like you who want to take their music careers to the next level. The time to be a modern musician is now, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.